I love to watch my seven-month-old granddaughter, Charlotte, eat. Uh, you know, if you've never had this experience yet, I think, I think being a, a grandfather is so much easier than being a dad. So you get to do all the messy stuff and then leave the cleanup to others, right? So you prop her up in her, in her high chair. You've got to put towels around her or she starts leaning. You know, she'll go right or she'll go left. And then you've got to puree her food. You know, she was on, on breast milk until about a month ago, and now she's getting to the regular food. But you, she has no teeth, so you've got to puree it, all right? And then you mix in a little bit of prune juice so no constipation sets in, but it makes all the food brown. How unappetizing is that? And then you get this little itsy-bitsy spoon, and you've got to try and hit her mouth, and her head's moving like this the whole time, you know? And so she's got brown gruel on her chin and her cheek and her ear and her eye, and it's, it's so amusing, if you, you look on my cell phone, many of my pictures of Charlotte uh, are of her trying to eat, or, or, you know, one of us trying to feed her. And while it's amusing, it wouldn't be so amusing if, let's say, 16 years from now, she's still insisting on the same eating behaviors. You know, if, if she says, hey, Gramps, put me in the high chair, would you? Yeah, Gramps, would you puree my cheeseburger? Come on. You know, try and hit my mouth. Yeah, yes. See, I, I sort of expect that she's going to outgrow some of these behaviors, right? That, that if she's healthy, physically, mentally healthy, that she's going to grow past. That's how it happens with kids in the physical realm. That's also how it happens to us spiritually. Okay, when you first surrender your life to Christ, you become a spiritual child. Now, whether that happens to you when you're 8 years old or 15 or you're 37 years old when you make that decision to surrender your life to Christ, at that moment you become a spiritual child. No embarrassment in that. That's how we all begin the Christian life. But God doesn't expect us to stay spiritual babies. God expects us to grow, and if we aren't growing, there's something seriously wrong. If, if you haven't passed through certain stages of spiritual development in, in the year or five years or 20 years since you first surrendered your life to Christ, then there's something in need of a fix. And this is the issue that the Apostle John is addressing in 1 John chapter 2. So take that Bible that you waved at me at four campuses a moment ago. Take the Bible, turn to 1 John chapter 2. And you want to get your outline out because we're going to do something special today. You're, you're going to take a self-evaluation. And so in order to know the basis upon which you're going to evaluate yourself, you're going to need to write some things down. So get the outline out if you would. We're in the fourth week of a 12-part study of this New Testament epistle. We're calling it, I Am a Disciple, because 1 John gives us a vivid picture of what a true disciple of Jesus looks like. And what we're going to learn about true disciples today is that they grow. Okay, true disciples grow. If you're an authentic, in an authentic relationship with Jesus, you're going to be maturing as a Christ follower. And if you're not maturing, if you're not growing, spiritually speaking, that something's wrong. So let me read today's passage to you. And as I read it, we're going to look at three stages of spiritual development. You'll see them, I think, in the text as I read it to you. So... Short text, just three verses long, 1 John chapter 2, beginning at verse 12. John says, I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, 
because you know him who's from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who's from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you're strong and the word of God lives in you and you've overcome the evil one. So John addresses three groups of people, dear children, fathers, young men. Now, before we look at these developmental stages of the Christian life, uh, there are certain questions, introductory questions, I want to raise because Bible scholars bring them up with regard to this passage. Now, these questions may have occurred to you as I was reading the text, and then again, maybe they're not of great interest to you, but here they are. Question number one, introductory question, is this. When John talks about dear children and fathers and young men, is he talking about people's physical age or people's spiritual age? In other words, when, when he says, dear children, is he talking to readers who are like between zero and ten years old, literally? Or is he talking about people who are relatively new to their faith in Christ? What do you think? Okay. Yeah. The latter, it's spiritual age he's talking about. As I said to you a moment ago, it doesn't matter what age you come to Christ. You know, if you, if you, if you were 37 years old when you surrendered your life to Christ, at that point you became a spiritual child. You were born into God's family. We'll come back to that later. So John is talking not about physical age here. He's talking about three categories of spiritual development. Okay, the second question that Bible scholars raise is, if that's the case, why doesn't John treat these three categories of spiritual growth in their developmental order? Did you notice that as I read? He talks to dear children and then fathers and then young men. And then he repeats it. Children, fathers, young men. Did that bug you? See, it really bothers some Bible scholars. See, what, what order would they prefer? If these are stages of spiritual development, it's children and then what? Young then young men, then fathers. Why does John get things out of order here? Some, some Bible scholars try to help John out. Okay, they, they say, well, actually what we have here are not three stages of spiritual development, but two. See, the introductory expression, dear children, is not a, sp a stage of spiritual development. It's just a general greeting. In fact, as you read through the epistle of 1 John, you'll find him frequently greeting his readers as dear children, dear children, dear children. You know, when, when John wrote this, he was fairly old, so everybody was his children, okay, both spiritually and physically, age-wise. So, so he's writing to dear children, that's not a stage of spiritual development, but after he greets them, then he says, okay, let me first talk to the more mature, the fathers, and then I'll talk to the less mature, the young men. By the way, this is the explanation of the text if you got an NIV study Bible, the explanation you'll read in your footnotes. So they got it all figured out. Okay, an introductory dear children, then the more mature fathers, the less mature young men, the order problem is fixed. Yeah, but I don't like that explanation. Let me tell you why. Okay, I, I agree that elsewhere throughout the epistle, John addresses all readers, whatever their, their spiritual age, as dear children. But in this particular passage, where he puts dear children next to fathers, next to young men, dear children, fathers, young men, it's obvious he's talking about three stages of spiritual development. So what do you do with the order problem? I don't know. I just don't think it's a big deal. See, I don't think it's, I think it's a non-issue. Let me illustrate why. Okay, I want to ask you a question of those of you who are married today. 
Those of you who are married. How many of you have been married less than five years? Put your hand up. Okay. Number of you. Good. How many of you have been married more than 20 years? More than 20 years. Okay. A lot of you. How many of you have been married somewhere between five and 20 years? Okay. What did I just do? Okay. I started with those who are the youngest married, and then I move to those who are the oldest married, and then I move to the mid-range married. Were any of you bothered by that order? You said, no, that's not right. <laughs> it didn't trouble you. So what does John do? He says, I'm going to talk to the youngest spiritually, and, and now I want to describe those who are oldest spiritually, and then we're going to get to the mid-range spiritually. It's not a problem. It's not a problem. Okay, one last question raised by Bible scholars. They want to know why John repeats himself. So he talks to dear children, fathers, young men, and then he starts over again. Dear children, fathers, young men. Why does John repeat himself? How many of you have noticed that I sometimes repeat myself when I preach? Let, let, let me ask that again. How many of you have noticed that I sometimes repeat myself? <laughs> why do I do that? It's just a literary device. You're, you're emphasizing something. And that's all that John is doing as he repeats himself in this text. So now that we have answered three fairly insignificant questions about the text, but questions that would have bugged some of you had I not answered them, let's get to the meat of the text. Okay, three stages of spiritual growth. And I'm not going to follow John's order. I'm going to take them in developmental order. And there's a goal to this study today. In fact, there are two things I'm going to ask you to do. Okay, here's the first. I want you to identify as we go through these three stages which stage you're at. And the fact of the matter is you might even have to admit that you're nowhere on the grid yet, that you're not in any of these three spiritual growth stages. But if you are in one of the stages, which one are you at? And second... Identify what step you need to take to bump you into the next stage of developmental growth so that you won't remain where you are forever because God intends you to grow. So here's stage one. Jot this down. Spiritual childhood. Spiritual childhood. There are three characteristics of spiritual childhood that John describes in today's text. Now, if all of these characteristics are true of you, then you're probably ready to move on to spiritual adolescence. But if any of these three characteristics is not yet true of you, then you haven't mastered spiritual childhood. In fact, there's a good chance that you haven't been spiritually born yet because in order to enter spiritual childhood, you have to be spiritually born. You say, well, how does that happen? Well, I think it's going to be apparent how to get spiritually born as we look at the three characteristics of spiritual childhood. Here's the first one. You'll find it at the beginning of verse 12. John says, I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. So the first characteristic of spiritual childhood is your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Now, friends, the Bible teaches that until you confess your sins to God specifically, until you confess your sins to God, until you acknowledge that Jesus' death on the cross was for you. See, what your sins deserve, their punishment is death. Until you acknowledge that Jesus took your death, until you ask God 
to forgive you in Jesus' name. Until, until you do what I've just described to you, you have no spiritual life. See, spiritual life comes from God. Spiritual life comes from God. Sin separates us from God. So have you ever asked Jesus to eliminate that separation by eliminating the guilt of your sins? Look again at the last line of verse 12. John says it's on account of his name. It's on account of Jesus' name that you can be forgiven. This is how you become spiritually born. This is how you enter spiritual childhood. Now, before I move on to a second characteristic of spiritual childhood, let, let me just say an additional word about confessing sins and receiving forgiveness from God. This is not only the essential first step to beginning a relationship with God. This is a step that we ought to be taking every day of our lives, no matter the stage of spiritual growth we're at. Okay, a couple of weeks ago, when Pastor Jameson preached on 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, he drew our attention to this verse that says, if we confess our sins, now stop a moment, John's not writing unbelievers in 1 John 1, 9. He's writing Christ followers. And he says, if we confess our sins, then God is faithful and just and will forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. So, so confessing sins and receiving God's forgiveness is not something you do once. Oh yeah, I did that and now you forget it, or something you do once in a great while. It's something you, you do every day. You know, my, my pattern is this. I get up in the morning, I grab my Bible, I sit in my Bible-reading chair with a cup of coffee, and I'm there to read God's Word, I'm there to pray, and my prayer begins by asking God's Spirit to help me review the previous 24 hours. And I say, Holy Spirit of God, I want to know, is there any area in my life where I displeased you or I grieved you yesterday? And I go through the conversations I had, my interactions with people, the decisions I made, the attitudes I carried around, my activities in the course of the day, and I confess any sinful behaviors, attitudes, words, and ask God to forgive me. In fact, twice a week, I do this on paper, just to make sure I'm being thorough, just to make sure I'm being sincere. In, in one page in my journal because I write in abbreviations and half sentences. I'm not, I'm not writing for publication. In fact, if this ever got published, I'd be in, in bad shape, all right? I'm, I'm, just, I'm just making certain that I'm clean in house, confessing sin, receiving God's forgiveness. If this sounds morbid to you, like, oh, that's kind of negative, you just don't know the joy of walking forgiven. Because, you know, there's a lightheartedness about it to know that each day as a Christ follower, you can begin with a clean slate. So this is not only the, the essential first step if you've never done this, this is how you begin a relationship with God. This is how you get spiritually born, but it's also something you practice every day of your spiritual life. Okay, back to 1 John 2. Spiritual childhood, a second characteristic. You are a child of God. Now, you would guess that this would be a characteristic of spiritual childhood. You're a child of God. But I want you to drop down from verse 12 that I read to you a moment ago to verse 14. This is where John begins his second round of addressing children, fathers, young men. And John says, I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. 
So spiritual childhood begins when God becomes our heavenly father. Now, this characteristic may come as a bit of a surprise to some of you because you're thinking to yourself, well, God is everybody's father, right? Everybody is a child of God. You hear people speak of the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. We're, We're all included. But this is not what the Bible says. In fact, in another portion of Scripture, also written by the Apostle John, I want you to keep your finger here in 1 John, but flip back toward the beginning of your Bible, you know, a few, few pages back to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Okay, if you've got your, your own Bible in front of you, John's Gospel, one of four biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Chapter 1, John is talking about God sending Jesus into the world. And I want you to listen carefully what he says about Jesus' appearance in our world. Verse 9, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Jesus was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own didn't receive him. Verse 12, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become, say it with me, four campuses. Children of God. According to John's gospel, how does a person gain the right to become a child of God? See, we're not automatically children of God. You become a child of God by doing two things. What are the two verbs that tell us what we got to do with Jesus in verse 12? Call them out. Good. Receive and believe. Receive and believe. Start with the second one. Okay, what do you believe about Jesus? Do you believe that Jesus is God's son come to earth in the flesh? Do you believe that Jesus lived a sinless life? That he did miracles that substantiated his deity? Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay for sins? Do you believe that he rose again from the dead? If you believe all that, that's great. But that's not the only thing you got to do. You also got to receive. You believe and you receive. So have you ever come to the point in your life where very de- deliberately, very consciously, you've welcomed Jesus into your life. You, you've invited him to come as Savior and King because that's who he is. Okay, it's a package deal. You don't say, well, I'll, I'll take the Savior part but not the King. No, you can't do that. Have you ever welcomed Jesus into your life for who he is? He's Savior and he's King. Have you ever received Jesus? This is how you become a child of God. By the way, the Bible teaches that you know you've made this decision by your willingness to go public with it. Okay, if you've gained a new family status, if you've become a child of God, you kind of want the world to know. And the way you do that is through baptism, which is why we do uh, three times a year, we do these baptism celebrations. We got one coming up in several weeks. And if you, you've never been baptized since believing and receiving Jesus, I'm not talking about uh, being baptized as an infant. I'm talking about since you've made your decision to believe and receive, then I invite you to go to one of our baptism orientation classes and be on the platform that weekend in March at our four campuses when we dunk you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you come up and tell the world, I'm a follower of Jesus. I believe and I receive. Okay, third characteristic. Go back to 1 John chapter 2. Third characteristic of spiritual childhood. 
you are submissive to God's authority. Go back to verse 14. I want to reread the opening line. John says, I write to you, dear children. Now, do you see the third characteristic of spiritual childhood here? Of course you don't, because you're reading the text in English. But if you were reading the text in the original Greek that John wrote it in, you would notice that John does something unusual here. He switches words. The word he uses for children in verse 12 and in verse 14 are two different words. You know, go, go back up to verse 12. He begins, I'm writing to you, dear children. The word he uses there is the Greek word technia. And, and what technia points to is the biological relationship between a parent and children. Okay, there is a, there is a biological bond here. There is a, a natural relationship. Okay, that's what the word children means in verse 12. Drop down to verse 14. Verse 14 begins, I write to you, dear children. Looks the same as verse 12, but in the Greek text, he changes words. Now it's not technia, it's the word paideia. And paideia speaks of the role that a parent has in the life of a child as a mentor, as a trainer, a tutor, a shaper, a coach, a disciplinarian. Now, now if the parent is to play this role in the life of the child, what do you think the child's response is to be? Submission to that authority, cooperation, obedience. That's, that's what the word means in verse 14. If, how many of you have been watching the Olympic Games? Okay, Don't you just love when they zoom in on an athlete and that athlete's coach? And there is this close relationship there. And you know, because you, you've heard the stories, you know that there's nothing that athlete wouldn't do for the coach. Okay, This is the picture that John's painting in verse 14 of the relationship between true children of God and God. Is this characteristic of spiritual childhood, you know, is this a trait reflected in your life? Are you submissive to God's authority? Do you take God's word seriously? Are you eager to do what it says? You know, if your answer to these questions is no, then maybe you haven't yet experienced spiritual birth because true children of God People who've, who've experienced spiritual childhood, they have this burning desire to please God. Okay, let's move on to the next stage. Number two is spiritual adolescence. Spiritual adolescence. I mentioned the Winter Olympics a moment ago. Yeah. Have you noticed that there are no eight and nine-year-olds participating in the games? You know, doesn't that kind of surprise you? See, of course it doesn't surprise me. Because when you're eight and nine years old, you don't have the strength, you, you don't have the coordination to do what these athletes are called upon to do. In, in fact, the youngest gold medal winner in winter game history uh, was 15 years old when she won her gold medal. It was an American figure skater by the name of Tara Lipinski. And she won it back in 1998. Now, interestingly, if you've been watching the games in Sochi, it, that record just got broken. Got broken by a Russian figure skater, also 15 years old, but she was six days younger than Tara was when Tara won the gold medal back in 1998. Now, here's the point I want to make. The, the point I want to make is this. 
You know, there, there are some things in the physical realm that you can only do once you reach adolescence. You don't have the strength, coordination to pull them off when you're a child. Okay, there are some things that can only be accomplished in the Christian life when you reach spiritual adolescence. Now, John describes spiritual adolescence as uh, young men in this text. Drop down to the middle of verse 13. He says, I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. You have overcome the evil one. Last fall, we did a three-part series called The Fight. It was all about overcoming evil in our lives. You remember that series? Okay, we're, we're in constant battle every day of our lives with evil, we said. And there are three forces working against us. You're, you're remembering now? Okay, there's this internal disposition, this bent towards sinning that is called what? Call it out if you know. The flesh. Okay, every one of us has the flesh working against us. And then there's a second enemy. This is an external force that is pressuring us to disobey God. And that's called what? The world. Right, media, peer pressure, so on. And, and then finally, there is a very personal spiritual adversary who's always tempting us, scheming against us. His name is Satan and his demons. So you got these three forces working together to bring us down. But believers have Jesus Christ on their side, and he is an all-powerful ally. In fact, I love what John says about Jesus in this regard in the next chapter of 1 John. Turn over one page to 1 John 3, verse 8. Look at the second half of that verse. John says, the reason the Son of God, the reason Jesus appeared, get this, was to destroy the devil's work. See, the devil's out to destroy you, but Jesus has come to destroy the devil's work against you. And that's why if you've reached the stage of spiritual adolescence, it'll be evidenced by the fact that you're overcoming evil in your life. You're overcoming evil in your life. Do you see signs of that happening in your life? Now, I am not implying that you're going to win every battle with evil, but my question is, are you frequently winning spiritual battles these days? Okay, you used to have a problem with gossip, talking about other people behind their back, and suddenly you find yourself resisting the urge to gossip. Whoa. Are you saying no to pornography on your electronic devices? There used to be a day when that brought you down, but oh, you're winning that battle. Are you spending less on yourself? Are you giving more to the Lord's work? You're winning the battle against materialism. Are, are you uprooting bitterness and reconciling broken relationships? Are you controlling your anger, controlling your mouth, controlling your, your appetite? If you're overcoming evil in your life, this is evidence that you've reached spiritual adolescence. On the other hand, if you find yourself constantly surrendering in your battles with sin, then you may be stuck in spiritual childhood. And, and, and friend, you, you may be 55 years old and stuck in spiritual childhood. You may have known Jesus for 15, 20 years and still be stuck in spiritual childhood. See, some of us have lived contentedly 
losing spiritual battle after spiritual battle. And John says, no. See, if you've reached spiritual adolescence, then you're overcoming evil in your life. You're putting it into your past. You know, Eric Lawson died this past week at age 72. I'm sure you all mourned him. You don't even know who he is, do you? Yeah. Well, I found it out in my news magazine. Eric Lawson was the Marlboro Man back in those 1970s, 1980s TV commercials. And he, he just died because of smoking-related diseases. I mean, here, here is this guy, rugged dude, manly cowboy, perched atop his horse, sucking on a cigarette. And his, his wife, his widow, said of her late husband, you know, he just couldn't break this habit. J- just didn't have the strength to say no. Isn't that interesting? The guy who projected an image of quiet strength couldn't overcome this evil in his life. So can you overcome evil? If you've reached the stage of spiritual adolescence, it's evidenced by the fact that you're learning how to appropriate Christ's strength in your daily battles with evil. Christ makes his strength available to you in in a variety of ways through his word. It's his word that will give you the strength to say no. It's accountability with other Christ followers. You're in a group community group where you're coming on a Tuesday night to our care night, meeting with a group that are overcoming a certain addiction perhaps. It's prayer, it's worship, it's drawing upon Jesus for the strength to win the spiritual battles. That's a mark of spiritual adolescence. And that leads us, I mentioned God's word, that leads us to the second characteristic. You are learning and living God's word. Jot that down. You are learning and living God's word. Look at the second half of verse 14. I write to you, young men. Okay, this is John's second go-round of children, fathers, young men. I write to you, young men, because you're strong and the word of God lives in you and you've overcome the evil one. Same last line that John previously used in addressing young men, spiritual adolescents, but, but this time it's preceded by something that gives us a clue as to how you overcome evil. He he says, I'm writing to you because you're strong and the word of God lives in you. Does God's word live in you? Now, I'm not asking, do you read your Bible daily? I'm not asking, do you study the Bible in the context of a community group? These are the means for learning the Bible. Very important. You can't live it if you haven't learned it. But John is challenging you, have you moved beyond learning to living? Okay, are, are you putting this book into practice? Are you applying it to your life, in your marriage, on the job, at school, when it comes to entertainment choices, spending priorities, sexual standards? Does, does God's Word, does the Bible live in you? I, I just want to reiterate something I said last week. The, the reason I blog twice a week is because I want to coach you with respect to getting applications from God's Word for your life. And so I just follow this Bible reading schedule, and you can access the Bible reading schedule, read God's Word every day and then twice a week. You know, go, go to that blog and let me help you find truth that can be applied to your life from the text you've been, been reading. Because God wants His Word to live in you. 
Never, never walk away from reading the Bible. Never walk away from listening to a sermon like what you're doing right now. Never walk away from meeting with a community group without determining what does God want me to do with what I just learned. How can this portion of the Bible I've been studying, how can it be lived out in me? Just a word of warning here, too. This is why you'll sometimes hear me say, be careful to regulate the amount of Bible input you're getting. Because sometimes we can, we can mistake Bible input for, for, for God's Word living in us. And, and so I want to say, if you're in more than one community group, or, or you like to listen to Christian radio Bible preachers or to uh, preachers who've got podcasts or you like to read Christian books, just slow it down a bit until you can make sure that you're putting into practice what you're learning. Otherwise, you'll think, whoa, I'm really growing. And the truth of the matter is, no, you're just getting a bigger head. You're, you just know more, but you're not necessarily living more. You, you with me on this? I walked out of my men's group this past Wednesday, and uh, we're following the reading schedule. So we're in 1 Samuel, and my head was spinning with some of the applications that the guys were bringing up, how to walk the text, put it into practice. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, I, I got stuff to do now. I got stuff to work on. And then the next thought that occurred to me is, and I haven't even finished working on the stuff I preached on last weekend when I preached about loving unlovable people and so many of you came to the front for prayer afterward. I'm still working on that. See, see this is not the time for me to, to be reading more Bible and listening to more Bible preachers and reading more Christian books if that eclipses the fact that I've got stuff to start living. It's only when your learning becomes living that you grow spiritually. You get it? Good. Good. Third stage, spiritual adulthood. Okay, what does John call spiritual adults in this passage? What does he call them? Fathers. Fathers. And he says the very same thing to fathers, both rounds. Okay, in verse 13 and then again in verse 14. First half of verse 13, first time around, he says, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who's from the beginning. Drop down to the middle of verse 14, he says it again, I'm writing to you fathers, because what? You know him who's from the beginning. So here is the spiritual uh, adulthood characteristic that, that we can draw from this repeated statement. Your knowledge of God is getting deeper. Your knowledge of God is getting deeper. Now, before I tease out what this means, let me note a contrast between what John says about dear children and what John says about fathers in verse 14. Because at first glance, it sounds like he's saying pretty much the same thing. Okay, he begins verse 14, I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. Okay, you know God. And then he continues, I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning, because you know God. So, so why, why is he characterizing both of these vastly different spiritual developmental stages as, as being pretty much the same. You know God. What's the difference between the two statements? Let me illustrate by going back to my granddaughter Charlotte, okay? Charlotte is beginning to talk. Now, she's not really talking. She's making noises. 
you know, but you like to think that your grandbaby is the brightest on the planet, and so you read, you read words in everything she says. So she's currently going, mom, 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 mom. She's calling her mom. Did you hear that? She's saying mommy when all she's doing is smacking her lips, all right? However, I'm fairly confident that one day soon she's going to say mommy and understand that she's calling for her mommy. You know, but until she gets a little bit older, there's a whole lot, a lot about her mommy, Rachel, my daughter Rachel, that she'll never understand. Until she gets a little older, she won't know that Rachel is not only a mommy, Rachel's a wife. She's a daughter. She's a granddaughter. Okay, she's a sister. She's a good friend. It won't be till Charlotte gets a little older that she figures out that her, that her mommy is, is a dental hygienist. She's a gifted pianist, that she's a great question asker. It won't be maybe until Charlotte becomes a young adult that she realizes her mom is gentle and kind and loyal. So many other cool things. See, that's just the nature of maturing, right? The, the, old, the more mature we, we get, I should say that, not necessarily the older, because it doesn't always come with age, but the more mature we get, the deeper we see other people around us. We stop looking at them so superficially. This is the way it is, friends, in our relationship with God. See, when we first come to know God, what do we know about him? Dada! That's what we know about him. We put our trust in Jesus. He becomes our spiritual dad. God does. That's why verse 14 begins, I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. But as you grow, as you mature, as you reach spiritual adulthood... What you know about God, keep reading, fathers, you know him who is from the beginning. Let me tell you the significance of this phrase. From the beginning. I don't think John's talking about God the Father here. I think he's talking, he's talking about God, but I think he's talking about God the Son. He's talking about Jesus. Because he's using the same words that he uses to speak of Jesus in his gospel. Opening chapter. So again, go back to John chapter 1. Keep your finger here and go back to the gospel of John chapter 1. Let me read to you the opening verses of John's gospel that speak of Jesus. Okay, In the epistle, he says, I'm writing to you, fathers, because you've known him who is from the beginning. The gospel begins, in the beginning was the word. He's talking about Jesus. But listen to all he says about Jesus. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and the life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John starts talking about Jesus, and as a mature believer, his words can't spill out fast enough. He says, you want to know who he is? But he's the one who's from the beginning, eternally past. He's the one who was not only with God, he is God. John says, he created the world, he says in these opening verses. He's the source of life. He's the light of the world. One thing after another, because as a mature believer, he's grown to know God deeper. You with me? You say, how, how does this happen to me? How can I grow deeper in my knowledge of God? That's what the Christian life is about. I want to give you two tools, Okay. A couple of tools, obviously God's Word, getting into God's Word. 
is important. But specifically with regard to God's Word, I want to let you know about this uh, little pamphlet we, we put together years ago that's been of such help to so many people. It, it's called the A to Z list of God's attributes, names, titles. You know, s- some of you know that God is loving, God is gracious, He's merciful, He's shepherd, He's... Oh, what else? That's about as far as you get. Did you know that there are over 250 names, titles, attributes by which God goes in Scripture? Over 250. What if we gave you a blank slate and said, write down everything you know about God, every attribute, title, name by which he goes? How long would your list be? So here's what we encourage you to do with this little pamphlet, which, by the way, you could pick up at the information counter at any one of our campuses. So I use this on a regular basis. I keep a copy with my Bible, with my journal, and I pull it out, and I move a little post-it note down three or four names or titles at a time. So, you know, if I'm in the S's, I might cover shepherd and savior and a couple other S words, and then I pray him back to God. I just tell God why I praise him for that particular trait. I praise you for being my shepherd. And like a good shepherd, you care for me as your sheep, and you know my name and you protect me from enemies, and you feed me, and you lead me beside quiet waters, like the psalmist says. I pray a few lines like that, and then I move to another attribute. And you do that on a regular basis, and your knowledge of God will grow deeper. There's a second tool I want to recommend to you, and as I do, I'm going to ask our worship teams to come on out, join, join me on our stage and at the stage of our other campuses, because in a moment, when we wrap things up, we're going to sing a song of praise to God, We're going to bring our tithes, our offerings to God, recognizing that he's the owner of it all. And and we just want to participate in an opportunity to bring gifts back to him. But here's the other tool I want to recommend to you, and that is go on a go team trip. Let me tell you why this will deepen your knowledge of God. Okay, right now you have a very Western, North American U.S., Illinois, Chicago suburb, street where you live, knowledge of God. It's very parochial. It's very small. And even though it will expand as you read God's word, you just need to go someplace different in this world and see how how God is worshipped by other people whom he's created in his image and redeemed through the death of his son on the cross. Because as you do that your experience of God will explode. Now, I called Eric Hansen, our international impact director, on the phone this week, and I said, this is how I'm going to close the service. I just want you to tell me, is this true? Am I like over the top? Am I making this up when I say that your knowledge of God will explode if you'll, you'll travel on a missions trip? And Eric said, oh my goodness, this has been so true of me. He said, when I go to Bangladesh, when I go anywhere in Asia, those people pray. And so I've come to know God more as a prayer-answering God. They pray until they break through. And so they see answers to prayer like we just don't see in the States. So my experience of God as a prayer-answering God has expanded. He, He said, when I go to Africa, my first trip to Africa, he said, I saw this little boy blind from birth, healed. His vision totally restored. I've come to know God as a miracle-working God because of the miracles I've seen in places in Africa. He said, when I go to Brazil, 
I've come to know God better as intimately present when I worship because those Brazilians, they get down. They party when they worship. They, they worship so passionately that God's presence, it's so thick you could cut it with a knife when God's being in worship. So I've come to know God as intimately present in my life. Is, is your knowledge of God expanding? Are you experiencing more of whom God is? You can experience this if you go on a go team trip. And so as we draw things to a close, I want to go back to the opening two issues I raised with you. Uh, number one is, have you identified where you're at in your stage of spiritual growth? Okay, are you, you spiritual childhood, spiritual adolescence, spiritual adulthood? Where are you? Maybe you're not on the grid yet. Maybe you've not been spiritually born because you, you need to confess your sins to God and acknowledge that Jesus has paid the debt of those sins. You can do that today. I, in fact, I would encourage you, do it, you to do it with somebody. Before we close today, before you leave the campus where you're listening to this sermon, go to the Welcome Center. Tell somebody, I want to get spiritually born today, okay? Can you pray me through that? Whatever stage you're currently at, the second question is, what do you need to do to bump it up? What do you need to do to take steps in the direction of the, the next developmental stage of spiritual growth? 